And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to episode number 31 of Trapcast, a highly contagious podcast that is a super spreader of solid Orthodox Roman Catholic information coming at you in an easily digestible and entertaining format. At Trapcast, we unmask the errors of the Novus Ordo religion and pseudo-traditionalism, and we offer sedevacantism as the only reasonable antidote to the pandemic of heresy and blasphemy unleashed upon the world since the Great Reset of Vatican II. Before we begin, I'd like to give a special welcome to all you Nicodemuses out there who are eagerly listening right now while at the same time hoping that no one will ever find out you're listening to a Sedevacantist podcast. That's okay. Welcome to you as well. We've got a lot planned for this episode, different things, not all just one topic, including a fun game that we're going to play later on. And um, as always, it will be a lot of solid Catholic information delivered with just a touch of that humor that is so necessary in our times. Because there's no reason why you couldn't combine good information with a little bit of fun, right? So yeah, you'll definitely want to stick around and listen to this podcast all the way to the end. And hey, if there is a topic that doesn't interest you, you can just skip ahead. I won't tell on you, okay? Promise. All right. It's always hard to know where to begin such a big podcast, but here's something that was in the Novels Ordo News recently that caught my eye. On October 4th, we read the following headline on crux. Being different must never lead to exclusion discrimination, Pope says. That was the headline on October 4th. Now, you might say, okay, what's newsworthy about that? Francis has been saying that since 2013, so who cares? Well, the reason this caught my eye is that this story came just three days after France's own new law took effect that requires all visitors to Vatican City to present a so-called green pass to be allowed entry. 
which means you have to show proof that you've either been vaccinated against COVID-19, recovered from it recently, or you've taken a particular kind of test showing that you probably don't have it. Everyone else, you guessed it, is excluded, marginalized, and discriminated against. In a September 29th article for Crux, reporter Ines San Martin writes, quote, As of October 1st, employees who fail to provide one of the three will be banned from entering their offices and will be considered absent without cause and without pay. According to a decree signed by the Vatican's Secretary of State, Italian Cardinal Pietro Parolin, the decision announced last week extends to all personnel, from cardinals to laypeople, head of dicasteries, and the gardeners who work in any Vatican offices. The rules include outside collaborators, contractors, and even delivery personnel. Unquote. Now, I find that very interesting for a church that supposedly doesn't ever want to exclude anyone for any reason and no discrimination and stuff. Now, keep in mind that they don't ask people to prove that they're immune to any other contagious diseases, right? They also don't require people to be Catholic to work there. Heresy is still permitted. Well, yeah, I mean, otherwise they'd have to kick Francis out, right? Uh, but there's another problem here. See, if this new Vatican requirement were about ensuring that no one who comes into the city-state is a carrier of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, then there would be some logic behind it. However, that's manifestly not the case, since they will let you in if you've been what they call fully vaccinated. And yet, it is public information now that being fully vaccinated does not mean that you cannot carry or spread the virus to others, nor does it mean that you can't get the disease. So, in other words, the Vatican is happy to let you in if you have the virus or COVID, as long as you can prove that you've been so-called fully vaccinated. So that means that these rules, which took effect October 1st, do not ensure that there is no spread of the SARS-CoV-2 virus in the Vatican. And yet, perfectly healthy people with no symptoms who won't do the Green Pass thing are not allowed to work in Vatican City anymore, or, for the most part, aren't even allowed to enter there are some exceptions, but they're just that, exceptions. Now, that is what I would call excluding and marginalizing people by a man who insists that being different must never lead to exclusion or discrimination. All right, enough of that depressing topic. Let's move on to some other things. An utterly useless new book has just been published. It's called From Benedict's Peace to Francis's War, Catholics Respond to the Motu Proprio Traditionis Custodes on the Latin Mass. It's 406 pages, 
containing 70 essays written by numerous authors in reaction to France's decree gradually phasing out the traditional mass in the Vatican II Church. The editor of the book is Peter Kwasniewski, whom, uh, by the way, we have critiqued quite forcefully on Novos Ordo Watch uh, numerous times, not to be confused with Peter Hoynowski of the Sister Lucy Truth Project. Now, why do I say it's a useless book? Well, because supposing Francis to be the Pope for a moment, it simply doesn't matter what these authors think about his liturgical decree. They have no business judging what comes from the Holy See. Pope Pius XII said that explicitly in his September 10, 1957 address to the General Congregation of the Society of Jesus. He commended the Jesuits for not doing what the recognized and resistors are doing on a daily basis. Pope Pius said, quote, Let no one take from you the glory of that rectitude in doctrine and fidelity in obedience due to the Vicar of Christ. Among your ranks, let there be no room for that free examination more fitting to the heterodox mentality than to the pride of the Christian, and according to which no one hesitates to summon before the tribunal of his own judgment even those things which have their origin in the apostolic see, unquote. When Francis released his decree Tradiciones Custodes on July 16th of this year, we immediately provided critical analysis and commentary in Tratcast Express, episode number 136, and uh, in a few blog posts where we also go through some of the reactions from the semi-trats. And for those of you who missed that, we're putting the most important links in the show notes for this episode. To get to the show notes, go to tratcast.org and scroll down to the Tratcast episode list and uh, click on episode number 31. And on that page, you will find them. Yeah, so aside from the fact that it doesn't matter who disagrees with the liturgical decisions of the Roman pontiff or how many people there are who do, these semi-trats aren't even all that many. I mean, considered relative to the entire Novus Ordo Church of, what is it, 1.3 billion people or something? In fact, if you look at who the highest-ranking clerical contributors are— Yes, you find some cardinals and bishops, but none of them hold any significant position in the Novus Ordo Church to begin with. Every single one of them is either retired or has some kind of inactive or simply insignificant status. There is not a single active head of a diocese among them, not one. The only two who come close are Athanasius Schneider and Robert Mutzertz, who are active in a diocese, but both of them are only auxiliary bishops, not ordinaries, so neither of them actually leads a diocese. And who are the others? Let's see. There are the following Novus Ordo Cardinals. Walter Braunmüller, retired. Raymond Burke, retired. 
Gerhard Müller retired. Robert Sarah retired. Joseph Zen retired. Then there's two archbishops, so-called Thomas Gullickson and Carlo Maria Vigano, but both of them are only nuncios and they're retired to boot. So they too don't play any active role in the Vatican II Church. And, and of course, Vigano has been hiding in the last, what, three years? So nobody even knows where he is. And that's it. Okay, those are the cardinals and bishops in the new church who have contributed to that book against Traditiones Custodes. All the other contributors are either lower-ranking clerics or laymen. Now, compare that to the Vatican II Church having over 3,000 dioceses and roughly 5,000 living Novos Ordo bishops. In other words, the resistance against Traditiones Custodes is comparatively tiny. It is no threat to Francis. All right, another book that was published earlier this year that I'd like to discuss briefly is the book Are Canonizations Infallible? Revisiting a Disputed Question. It, too, is an anthology of essays by various recognize and resist writers, and it is also edited by Peter Kwasniewski. Now, this book is a serious academic effort aimed at discovering the truth of the matter. Based on its own description, it argues both sides of the issue, though it's clear that the overall thesis being put forward is that no, canonizations are not infallible. Now, the motive behind bringing up this whole issue in the first place is simple. The Vatican II sect, which they believe to be the Catholic Church, has been canonizing some moral scoundrels as saints. How is this possible? Quite simply, it's possible because the man they believe to be the Pope isn't the Pope. That explains it all. But that is something they refuse to accept or even consider, and so they have to look for another way to explain why someone like Antipope Paul VI can be declared a saint. Now, I'm not going to offer a review of the content of this book here because I haven't studied it. I just want to make some general observations on this topic that I think are often overlooked. Let's start by examining what a pope actually says when he canonizes someone as a saint. See, the funny thing is, the Vatican II Church has retained the traditional formula of canonization. In other words, Pope Pius XII, for instance, used the exact same words when declaring people saints that Francis used for Paul VI on October 14, 2018. Now, there may be differences in the surrounding rites and, and definitely in the process that is used by the Vatican to conclude that someone is a saint, but the actual solemn formula that declares the person to be a canonized saint for the entire church, that formula is still identical to what it was before Vatican II. So here are the words that Francis pronounced when he canonized Paul VI. There were other people canonized alongside with him in the same ceremony, 
And of course, he mentions those names too, but I'll, I'll omit those here because they're, they're not relevant uh, to what we're trying to do. Here's what Francis said, quote, For the honor of the Blessed Trinity, the exaltation of the Catholic faith, and the increase of the Christian life by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the holy apostles Peter and Paul and our own, after due deliberation and frequent prayer for divine assistance, and having sought the counsel of many of our brother bishops, we declare and define blessed Paul VI and the others to be saints, and we enroll them among the saints, decreeing that they are to be venerated as such by the whole church, in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Unquote. Now we've got the source for this linked in the show notes, so you can verify that we're not making this up. Folks, if words have any meaning, and if Francis is a true Pope, then Paul VI is a saint. Francis declared and defined him to be one, and decreed that he is to be venerated as a saint by the entire church. And he ratified this in the name of the Holy Trinity. If a Peter Kwasniewski, Christopher Ferreira, John Lamond, Athanasius Schneider, whoever, can just come along and say, no, he's not, then what is a papal declaration worth. But let's be really generous here and say, okay, for the sake of argument, let's say that this is not an infallible declaration. Let's say that this could be wrong and the saint in question might not actually be a saint, okay? Might not actually be in heaven. Well, at the very least, you would have to concede that even if not infallible, the declaration is nevertheless authoritative. Okay, That means it binds your conscience. Right or wrong, you must accept. Again, if we assume that Francis is a true pope, you must accept that Paul VI is a saint in heaven and is to be venerated as such. That means that even if you have reasons to believe that he is not one, well, your doubts, your suspicions have no authority at all, whereas the papal declaration does. So your objections don't mean squat. Your conscience is bound by the words of the Pope. And that's my first observation. I think that the question of the infallibility of canonizations, as legitimate as it is in itself, should not be the focal point. At the end of the day, it's not about infallibility, it's about authority. The Pope's solemn declaration has authority. Your opinion doesn't. People keep forgetting, or they keep misunderstanding, that the church's authority does not come from her inability to be wrong. 
It comes from her divine commission to teach, rule, and sanctify, which was given to her by Jesus Christ. She is the divinely appointed teacher and ruler of all Catholics. When she speaks, therefore, Catholics have a duty to listen, even if what she teaches is not infallible. Keep in mind that when Christ commissioned the 72 disciples, he didn't grant infallibility to them, but he did give them authority, saying, He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. That's Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Now again, don't think I'm making this up. In 1935, Ken George Smith wrote the following in an article for the Clergy Review called Must I Believe It? Quote, Herein lies the source of the obligation to believe what the Church teaches. The Church possesses the divine commission to teach, and hence there arises in the faithful a moral obligation to believe, which is founded ultimately not upon the infallibility of the Church, but upon God's sovereign right to the submission and intellectual allegiance of his creatures. He that believeth shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. It is the God-given right of the church to teach, and therefore it is the bounden duty of the faithful to believe. Unquote. Again, that's from Father George Smith writing in the Clergy Review in the 1930s. I've put a link to that whole essay in the show notes so you can read the entire thing. So, when the Pope issues a solemn judgment that a man or woman is in heaven, then that declaration is binding on consciences. Even if it were not infallible, it would still be authoritative. Remember, the Pope, any true Pope, possesses the keys to the kingdom of heaven, which Christ gave to Simon Peter after the resurrection and announced in Matthew 16:19, And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth, it shall be bound also in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose upon earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. So, what the Pope binds is bound. But let's be even more generous and say that it's not even binding on anyone, that it's simply optional, the canonization of a saint, right? So, that would mean that you can take it or leave it. You can believe that Paul VI is a saint in heaven who is to be venerated by all, or that he is not. It's up to you. But even in that case, the papal judgment would still have to be spiritually safe to accept. In other words, precisely because it is optional, it is a legitimate option. And that would mean that it is entirely safe for a Catholic to venerate Paul VI as a saint in heaven, to pray to him, to imitate him, and to let his supposedly saintly life be a model for one's own. 
That is the absolutely least you would have to grant given his canonization. But the Semitrats can't even grant that much because, of course, Paul VI's known life was far from holy, admirable, or worthy of veneration or imitation. And that brings me to my second observation. It's not about infallibility or even authority. It's about basic credibility. A church that can declare as lousy of a character as Paul VI, Giovanni Battista Montini, to be a saint in heaven, worthy of veneration and imitation, is much more than not infallible or even not authoritative. Such a church is not even credible. See, it's one thing to say that Paul VI was declared a saint, but he might not be in heaven because... Even though he had outstanding virtue and led a saintly life, for one reason or another that we don't know about, he didn't make it in the end. Okay, That's one thing. It's quite another thing to say that Paul VI was declared a saint, but his life was a monstrous scandal that caused the loss of faith, hope, and charity in hundreds of millions of souls by the universal imposition of heresy, blasphemy, and untold sacrilege affecting the entire church for generations to come. The former is odd but debatable. The latter is utterly absurd and would render the church much less than not infallible or not authoritative. It would make the Catholic Church into a cruel joke— lacking all credibility to be a divine guide for anything. It would simply be laughable to say that a pope can make such a declaration of sainthood for Paul VI, and then he was the exact opposite of a saint. And it won't do for people to argue that a future pope could set the matter right, because if such a declaration of canonization isn't even credible, well, there's no reason why a future papal judgment should be credible either, much less binding or even infallible. The Pope, again, if we assume Francis to be Pope for a moment, the Pope has already rendered a judgment on Paul VI, a solemn one, right now. And that judgment is that he is to be venerated by the entire church as a Catholic saint. That is the papal judgment. A future papal judgment could not trump this one, since each pope only has exactly as much authority as any other pope. In other words, don't fall for this red herring that Francis is a true pope, but we have to reject all of his stuff now because, oh, a future pope will overturn it all one day. If the church can fail now, then she can fail at any other point in history too. And there is no reason to say that she was true in the past and will again be in the future, but is a doctrinal and liturgical trash heap in the meantime. And this, once again, shows just how important the Pope question is. 
the integrity of the Catholic faith as a whole hinges on it. Anyway, these are my two observations on the issue of Novus Ordo canonizations. Oh, actually, one last thing here. Isn't it ironic that the people who say that a future pope is going to need to overturn all these fake post-Vatican II saints are the same people who blew a gasket when Paul VI did exactly that? Well, almost. He removed saints from the liturgical calendar he believed couldn't be proven to have existed historically. And uh, if I remember correctly, that was St. George and uh, St. Philomena. The Semitrads were up in arms about that. And now they're essentially asking for the same thing. You see, the more obvious the apostasy in the Vatican II sect becomes, the more difficult it's getting for these recognize and resist apologists to come up with argumentation that meets even the criteria of basic credibility, coherence, and common sense. I mean, at some point, you just can't keep this going. You just can't defend the idea anymore that this hellhole of blasphemy and apostasy in Vatican City has anything to do with the Roman Catholic Church of Pope Pius XII. It's not the same doctrine, it's not the same worship, and it's not the same disciplinary laws. What is the point of insisting on Francis as a valid pope if you say there are no consequences to his being pope, right? At least no consequences except for the ones you agree with, you know, like valid bishop appointments and stuff. In the Catholic Church, the Holy See, the pope, is the final arbiter of anything touching on faith and morals, anything touching on the sacred liturgy, anything touching on ecclesiastical discipline. When the Pope renders a decision, that's it. That decision is legally valid, and there is no authority on earth that can question or overturn it. He is the final arbiter. The First Vatican Council in 1870 states explicitly, quote, And since the Roman Pontiff is at the head of the universal church by the divine right of apostolic primacy, we teach and declare also that he is the supreme judge of the faithful, and that in all cases pertaining to ecclesiastical examination, recourse can be had to his judgment. Moreover, that the judgment of the apostolic see, whose authority is not surpassed, is to be disclaimed by no one, nor is anyone permitted to pass judgment on its judgment. Therefore, they stray from the straight path of truth who affirm that it is permitted to appeal from the judgments of the Roman pontiffs to an ecumenical council as to an authority higher than the Roman pontiff." Unquote. That's uh, from the dogmatic constitution, Pastor Eternus of Vatican I, Chapter 3. You can also find it in Denzinger, number 1830. And that, what I just quoted, is precisely 
what so many recognize and resist people do not accept, especially not the Lefebvreists. The people of the Society of St. Pius X, founded by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. The very existence of their apostolate is based on the refusal to accept the judgment of men they believe to have been true popes. So, in their world, if the pope renders a judgment they disagree with, well, that's just too bad for the pope. They'll do their thing with or without papal approval. This refusal of submission to the Roman pontiff has a name in church law and in the moral law. It's called schism. And schism puts you outside the Catholic Church, as Pope Pius XII made absolutely clear in his encyclical Mystici Corporis, paragraph 23, quote, Not every sin, however grave it may be, is such as of its own nature to sever a man from the body of the Church as does schism, or heresy, or apostasy. Unquote. Now, of course, the Lefebvreists and other recognize and resist people bring up all kinds of arguments, or rather excuses, for why they are nevertheless permitted to do what they're doing. But that just proves my point. They decide whether what they're doing is legitimate, not the Pope the man they believe to be the Pope, right? They are the final arbiter, not the Vicar of Christ. And yes, I know they have all sorts of good intentions and they're just trying to be Catholic and doing the best they can, yada, yada. But that's beside the point. The point is that their position is wrong and indefensible. You know, the funny thing is that Pope Pius IX shot down all of such resistance arguments in his 1873 encyclical letter, Quartus Supra, which uh, you'll find linked in the show notes. That document is little known, but it reads like a direct condemnation of every SSPX argument, just about, every SSPX argument used to justify their position. Please uh, do have a look at it. You won't believe how many parallels there are between the Armenian schismatics whom Pius IX was refuting and the apologists of the Society of St. Pius X, especially during the 1980s and 90s. Now, let me give you a good concrete example of how we see this final arbiter problem in the daily apologetics of those semi-traditionalists, those recognize and resistors. Because it happens all the time. Uh, but I think it often just doesn't get noticed. So here's an example. On August 18th, 2020, writer Chris Jackson published a post at The Remnant entitled The True Vatican II FAQs. Okay, FAQs meaning frequently asked questions. The True Vatican II FAQs. Now, the background to that is that on August 7th, 2020, the Novus Ordo Auxiliary Bishop of Los Angeles, Robert Barron, had published on his Word on Fire Ministries website some questions and answers on the Second Vatican Council. Being a good Novus Ordo Bishop, Barron, of course, defended the Council right in line with the Novus Ordo Magisterium. Now, 
Of course, that didn't sit well with recognize and resistors, and so Jackson took it upon himself to ask the same questions as Barron did, but provide his own alternative answers. And those were then published at The Remnant. Now, never mind that Barron is a bishop in the Vatican II Church, of which Jackson is a member. And uh, he operates Barron does. He operates his uh, apostolate with the approval of that same Vatican II Church. By raising him to the rank of bishop, Francis himself obviously endorsed what he's doing because now he can do it even more effectively because now he can do it with more authority. But never mind. The remnant disagrees, so one of their columnists can simply contradict that, and that is then the true view of the Second Vatican Council. See, that's how it works in resistance land, right? And once again, the question ultimately is, who decides? Who is the final arbiter? If the remnant really wanted to know what a Catholic can and must think about Vatican II, they could simply send an inquiry, the so-called dubium, to the Vatican Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and I guarantee you they would be more than happy to answer their questions. And I likewise guarantee that their answers would be much closer to those provided by Robert Barron than to those given by Chris Jackson. Of course, Jackson's answers to the questions on Vatican II are entirely one-sided. He does quote some putative authorities, but only when and where they support his position. For example, Jackson quotes Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre a lot. The problem is Lefebvre wasn't an authority on these matters, and his appeal to him as an authority is disingenuous. The Vatican certainly didn't agree with or endorse Lefebvre's criticism of the council, right? And the only reason why Jackson considers Lefebvre an authority to begin with is that he agrees with him. That's it. Would he cite Archbishop Lefebvre if he didn't agree with him? Of course not. Take another example. In one question, Jackson uses as his authority then-Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. Of course, only for one particular quote, and it's from an interview to boot, not even some official church text. And guess what? The Ratzinger quote Jackson presents is a quote he happens to agree with, and that is the only reason he quotes him. Had Ratzinger said the opposite, Jackson would be arguing now that that's just the words of one cardinal in an informal interview, and therefore it has no authority, and it's utterly non-binding. That's how the game is played. Then, on the question of the authority of Vatican II, Jackson does quote the very supposed pope who promulgated it, Paul VI, except he quotes him very selectively and omits those things from Paul's words that contradict his position. And then he doesn't even provide the correct reference. I don't think that was intentional. I think he was just being sloppy, because ultimately for these people, this isn't about Paul VI's actual position on the council or what their obligation of adherence actually is. This is just about finding this or that proof text in order to defend their position. Jackson quotes Paul VI as follows, quote, In view of the pastoral nature of the council, it avoided proclaiming 
in an extraordinary manner any dogmas carrying the mark of infallibility, unquote. That is correct. Paul VI did say that. But there's something else he said that Jackson didn't tell you about right after these words. Paul VI said, quote, But it still provided its teaching with the authority of the supreme ordinary magisterium. This ordinary magisterium, which is so obviously official, has to be accepted with docility and sincerity by all the faithful in accordance with the mind of the council on the nature and aims of the individual documents. Unquote. That's part of the Paul VI quote you don't typically hear about from the recognize and resist people. And I, honestly, I think most of them don't even know that Paul VI said this because the quote has long been circulated in this truncated version and people tend to just copy and paste mindlessly and never bother to check any sources. And it looks like that's exactly what Jackson did as well. The quote worked for him and that's all that mattered. And so he even got the citation wrong. Paul VI actually said these words in his general audience of January 12, 1966. Jackson said it was December 1st, 1966, almost a year later. Ironically, he cites the January 21st, 1966 edition as printing the text from which he's quoting, when at the same time he's saying that Paul VI didn't speak these words until ten and a half months later. Why did Jackson make that mistake? Well, a quick web search reveals the answer. He simply copied and pasted what Raymond Toke wrote on his website, catholicapologetics.info, because that website has the exact same mistake on it, verbatim. You know, this kind of carelessness, this kind of sloppiness makes me really angry because it shows that, that these people are more interested in scoring a point, in, in publishing a defense of their position, than in getting the facts right. Jackson didn't care enough about this to do any serious research. He simply went on Raymond Toke's website, looked up what it says there about Vatican II, and blindly copied and pasted. Raymond Toke, by the way, is now a priest for the Society of St. Pius X, so he's now Father Raymond Toke, uh, but that website has been up for decades, and so he put that together long before his ordination. So this is how seriously Chris Jackson and the Remnant take these matters. We're talking about matters of faith, hope, and charity here. These are matters impacting people's salvation, for heaven's sake. And yet they care so little to ensure that what they're saying is actually true. Anyway, so that was a clear example of selective quoting while omitting the full context or while omitting other things Paul VI said that contradict the narrative Jackson and the remnant want to convey. Yeah, see, Jackson could have quoted from Paul VI's allocution of May 24th, 1976, for example, right, in which the fake pope addresses specifically the claims of Archbishop Lefebvre. For example, Paul VI said this, quote, It is even affirmed that the Second Vatican Council is not binding, that the faith would also be in danger because of the reforms and post-conciliar directives, 
that one has the duty to disobey in order to preserve certain traditions. What traditions? Is it for this group? Here he means the Lefebvreists. Is it for this group, not the Pope, not the College of Bishops, not the Ecumenical Council, to decide which among the innumerable traditions must be considered as the norm of faith? As you see, venerable brothers, such an attitude sets itself up as a judge of that divine will which placed Peter and his lawful successors at the head of the church to confirm the brethren in the faith and to feed the universal flock and which established him as the guarantor and custodian of the deposit of faith, unquote. So why didn't Chris Jackson quote that from Paul VI? <laughs> Easy, because he doesn't agree with it. But when you quote as an authority someone who says something you agree with only because you agree with it, then the authority you're really following is yourself. And that is exactly what the semi-traditionalists, the recognize and resist people, are ultimately doing. And that is the essence of private judgment, following yourself rather than the church. See, accepting Paul VI as a true pope has consequences. Now, am I saying that they should follow Paul VI? No, of course not. I am saying they should draw the only possible and logically consistent and necessary conclusion that Paul VI was not a legitimate pope. What are some other authorities quoted by Jackson? Let's see. Well, he pulls out the late English writer Michael Davies, a high school teacher by profession, if I recall correctly, and also Archbishop. Carlo Maria Viganò, another non-authority in the new church. Oh, and for one question, he quotes Raymond Tope directly. Yep, for the question whether parts of Vatican II's doctrine could be removed or reversed in the future, because Raymond Tope is an authority on that, right? Yeah, Tope quotes Ratzinger, but Ratzinger's quote doesn't address that. Besides, Ratzinger is a modernist, so who cares? Again, the way they proceed is that they try to find quotes they can use as proof texts for their position. Whether or not the person in question actually is a Catholic authority that can pronounce on the matter is completely irrelevant as long as it makes their position work, because they are the final arbiter on all those questions, not the people they insist are the legitimate ecclesiastical hierarchy. When you think about it, it is an utter shame how many good-willed people out there follow these self-appointed recognize-and-resist writers, thinking them to be beacons of traditional Catholicism when they're really just the blind leading the blind, whose work, wittingly or not, attacks and repudiates the actual traditional Catholicism, as found, for example, in the papal magisterium before Vatican II. And now, it's definitely time for a quick break. Lots more to come when we return in a few minutes, and uh, we'll finally get to our fun game that you can participate in. Don't go anywhere. It's not just a podcast. It's, it's a, a Trapcast. Trapcast. Trap 
Did you know that SushiPay Media produces traditional Catholic content, including content for True Restoration? Do you want to be part of a traditional Catholic production team that specializes in audio and video? If you have three to six hours a week that you can dedicate to the cause, and if you want to work on projects that enable you to access Catholic content before it goes public, you would be interested to know that SushiPay Media has current opportunities available. All SushiPay Media staff are eligible for a free True Restoration monthly membership and a 75% discount on a True Restoration annual membership during their employment. Experience in audio and video production is a bonus, but not required. All we want is a can-do attitude and reliability. SushiPay Media will provide training and ongoing coaching for all successful applicants. To register your interest, please contact us by emailing info at sushipaymedia.com. That's info at S-U-S-C-I-P-E-Media.com. Ignore this podcast at your own risk. Tratcast is a production of NovusOrtoWatch.org. We watch the Vatican II Church so you don't have to. Go to NovusOrtoWatch.org. NovusOrtoWatch.org and see for yourself that the Vatican II Church is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Tradcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for sticking around for another segment of Tratcast, the podcast that is not more Catholic than the Pope, only more Catholic than the Antipope. Okay, now, as promised, our fun game. It's a quiz, actually. And uh, you can participate in it from wherever you are, no matter what you're doing right now, just by guessing, by thinking, by doing your best to come up with the right answer. What can you win? Absolutely nothing. But it will probably be penance for your ears, so there is a spiritual benefit. The name of the quiz is Who Said It? Francis or the Dalai Lama? All right, cue the jingle we created for this. Who Who said it? it? I know, I know, this is this is going to be controversial. I know some people are going to be really upset now. They're going to object and say that that's not fair, that's way too difficult, and, you know, granted, this is definitely going to be a challenge. This is not going to be an easy quiz. So, but you know what? Let's just go ahead now and start, and let's just see how it goes. Okay, I'm going to read you the first quote now, and you tell me if you think 
that this is a quote from the supposed Pope or from the 14th Dalai Lama, who, for those of you who aren't that familiar with paganism, is a Buddhist. Okay, so quote number one, I think we'll do a total of five or so, we'll say, oh, and wait, just to be clear, Dalai Francis is not an acceptable answer. Okay, so you're going to have to answer either Francis or Dalai Lama. Here we go. Quote one, I call religion an imminent transcendence, namely a contradiction. But the true religions are the development of the capacity that humanity has to transcend itself towards the absolute. So, who said it? Wrong. It was Pope Francis in an interview he gave just before his trip to Sweden in October of 2016. The transcript was published in La Civiltà Cattolica and also online, and of course we're linking to it in the show notes. Okay, next one. Ready? Here is quote two. What's past is past, nothing can change that. But the future can be different if we choose to make it so. We have to cultivate a vision of a happier, more peaceful future and make the effort now to bring it about. This is no time for complacency. Hope lies in the action we take. Who said it? Wrong. It was the Dalai Lama in a tweet sent on October 15th, 2021. All right, let's move on to quote number three. Our ancestors viewed the earth as rich and bountiful, which it is, but what's more, it is our only home. We must protect it not only for ourselves, but also for future generations and for the countless species with which we share the planet. Who said it? Wrong. It was the Dalai Lama. In his message to the climate conference COP26, in Glasgow on October 31st, 2021. All right, quote four. A constant tension exists between fullness and limitation. Fullness evokes the desire for complete possession, while limitation is a wall set before us. Broadly speaking, time has to do with fullness as an expression of the horizon which constantly opens before us, while each individual moment has to do with limitation as an expression of enclosure. People live poised between each individual moment and the greater, brighter horizon of the utopian future as the final cause which draws us to itself. Who said it? 
song. It was the Frankster, the so-called Pope Francis. He said this in his apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, released on November 24th, 2013. And you can find it there in paragraph number 222. This is a boatload of fun, isn't it? I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. Okay, one more. Here is quote five. It's a very short one. Quote five. Appearances notwithstanding, every person is immensely holy and deserves our love. Ooh, this is difficult. Who said it? Wrong. It is Pope Francis. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it really was Chaos Frank. That is a quote, likewise, from Evangelii Gaudium, paragraph 274. (laughs) You just can't make this stuff up. All right, so that was five. Want to do more? Let's Let's do one more, okay? One more just for the fun of it. Okay, here is quote number six. Peace in the world depends on peace within. If we have that, we'll approach problems in a spirit of dialogue, compassion, and respect for the rights of others. Always a better solution than resorting to a use of weapons and force. External disarmament depends on inner disarmament. Who said it? Wrong. It was the Dalai Lama in a tweet sent on August 16th, 2021. Look, I know this wasn't totally fair, but I think we can all learn something from this fun little exercise. Namely, Francis and the Dalai Lama are getting harder and harder to tell apart. But uh, at least the Dalai Lama doesn't claim to be a Catholic. All right, before we move forward, as Francis would say, and come to our next topic, I'd like to let everyone know that on October 8th of this year, yours truly gave a presentation at the Fatima Conference in Spokane, Washington, hosted by the Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen at Mount St. Michael's. The talk was entitled, Eclipse of the Church, the Case for Set of Acantism. And the objective was to give a coherent, easy-to-follow introduction or high-level overview to what has happened to the Catholic Church and why. This was not a lecture focusing on detailed theological arguments about Sedevacantism, but an explanation that looks at the big picture of our situation and makes sense of it by focusing on the purpose for why Christ became incarnate and founded an indefectible church to begin with, not only as an organized society, but as his very own mystical body in which he is pleased to suffer just as he did in his physical body on earth. One of the benefits of such an approach 
is that it focuses on what is essential and avoids a lot of the unnecessary argumentation that uh, people often tend to get caught up in. And so it is really not a polemical talk, nor is it overly academic. I would say it is a very accessible and also edifying presentation. So if you haven't listened to it yet, I've got the link in the show notes. Again, it's called Eclipse of the Church, The Case for Sedevacantism, and it's available in audio and video. And also we have the full transcript available for download, which includes plenty of footnotes with all the documentation you need for the many quotes used in the lecture. All right, moving on. I don't know if you've heard about the developments at 1 Peter 5 this past summer, but founder and director Steve Skojak has resigned and sold the corporation to Crisis Magazine. So Skojak is no longer involved in 1 Peter 5, and in fact he has tragically become an angry apostate now, who is busy on Twitter and on his own personal blog, explaining to people why he doubts not only the Catholic Church and the dogma of original sin, but even the existence of an all-good God. It's really utterly frightening, and I won't dwell on it here. In fact, I won't even link to the stuff he said, but I did want to point it out so that people know what's going on and can pray for him and his family. And as tragic as this is, it's not unexpected because you could see this coming from a mile away. Okay? On April 3rd, 2017, Skojek had published an article on 1 Peter 5 entitled, Stand Fast, the Storm Will Break. And in it, he made the case for what he called a practical state of Akantism. And by that, he meant that we must recognize Francis as the true pope, but act like he isn't. Now, I published a substantial response to that on April 25th of that year, entitled, Anything but Sedevacantism, Analysis of a Curious Phenomenon. And in that response, which you can find linked in the show notes for this episode, I pointed out that such a state of affairs in which one denies in practice what one affirms in theory cannot last long. I wrote, quote, The discrepancy between one's thoughts and one's actions will quickly resolve itself into either changing one's actions to align with the thoughts or changing one's thoughts to correspond with the actions. The cognitive dissonance of a practical set of accountism will be coming home to roost, unquote. And for Steve Skojek, now it has. All right, so Crisis Magazine has taken over 1 Peter 5, and the new editor-in-chief is Timothy Flanders. Contributing editors include Eric Sammons, Peter Kwasniewski, Kennedy Hall, and others. In other words, 1 Peter 5 remains firmly in the grip of the false traditionalists of the recognize and resist position, and so the content seems to be more or less the same as before. Okay, last big topic for today. On July 14th of this year, the diehard Novos Ordo website Where Peter Is published an article on traditionalism that merits some discussion. It was written by Dr. Pedro Gabriel and is entitled The Modernist Root 
of radical traditionalism. Now, with a title like that, it was sure to get some attention, so let's have a look at it. In the article, Gabriel argues that there is a prevalent attitude among what he calls radical traditionalists that mirrors the modernist era of religious immanentism condemned by Pope St. Pius X in 1907. Now, by and large, I think the author is right in his criticism, though um, I want to make sure, or I want to make clear, that the traditionalists he's referring to are those that are in communion with the Vatican II Church, like the diocesan indult people. And I think that what he criticizes can also be found a lot in those traditionalists that recognize the Novus Ordo hierarchy as valid and legitimate, but resist it, such as the Society of St. Pius X and similar resistance groups. Now, I can't rule out, of course, that the error Gabriel describes may even be present among some state of contests, and if it is, it needs to be weeded out because it's a serious matter. So anyway, what is this modernist religious imminence or vital imminence that Pope Pius X warned against? Put in simple terms, it's basically the idea that faith and religion have their origin in the personal religious feeling of each individual believer. In the context of Pedro Gabriel's critique, he's basically arguing that these traditionalists are basing their theological position on a subjective experience of the traditional Latin Mass, and perhaps, by extension at least, also of other traditional practices. And to make that point, he quotes the Reverend Mark Goring, a Novus Ordo priest in Canada, who said on Matt Frad's Pints with Aquinas podcast, quote, The Lord is anointing the traditionalists. When people go to traditional masses, they're experiencing God, and they're staying, and it's causing them to want to be holy and love Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, unquote. Another example Gabrielle gives is that of an unnamed commenter on Facebook who counseled a convert to attend the extraordinary form, meaning the traditional Latin Mass, and, quote, sit back while you feel the holiness coursing through you, unquote. Indeed, this is the kind of talk you really do hear from a number of these traditionalists who place so much emphasis on the experience of the sacred liturgy. Now, there's nothing wrong, of course, with having a positive experience at the traditional Mass, but that can't be the reason why you go there. That can't be the basis of your theology, is the point. And honestly... To speak of holiness flowing through you by experiencing the traditional Mass is just nonsense. Besides, if that's going to be your argument for the traditional Mass, well, how are you going to counter someone who says that he gets that same holy experience when practicing yoga? So, see how dangerous this is? So, 
Insofar as Pedro Gabriel is criticizing such an attitude, I think he's right on the money. He writes, quote, When the focus of one's faith becomes the profound religious experience, something not unique to Christianity, this is not a far cry from the point where someone might infer that all existing religions are equally true, for otherwise they would not live, unquote. Again, right on the money. There is just one problem with Gabriel's entire argumentation, one that completely pulverizes his own position. All this stuff about subjective religious experience as the basis for faith and religion is what has been preached from the housetops by the false Vatican II popes and the Novus Ordo hierarchy as a whole. In fact, that is probably why these semi-trads make this argument about experiencing God at the traditional Mass to begin with. Because the excessive focus on experience and religious sentiment is what they were taught in Novus Ordo Catechism. But more on that in a minute. Let me quote some more from Gabriel. He writes, quote, Radical traditionalists often say they prefer the extraordinary form traditional mass, because it elicits a more authentic religious experience in them. The corollary is that they will harshly criticize the ordinary form, new mass, for failing to produce that same experience. Online, you can read many testimonies they write about how they felt the first time they attended the extraordinary form. It is not uncommon for them to express how they felt robbed of this profound way to connect with the divine. The problem with this kind of reasoning, as Pius X so rightfully asserts, is that it opens the door to religious indifferentism, unquote. Very, very, very true. Now, of course, for a hardcore Novus Ordo website like where Peter is to complain about religious indifferentism is irony on stilts. Their fake pope openly teaches that God wills a diversity of religions, and here they're complaining that what some are saying about the traditional mass could lead to indifferentism. I mean, hello? I remember when I first went to what I thought was a traditional Catholic mass, Back in 1998, it was a uh, diocesan indult liturgy, I did not have a good experience at all. As far as feelings go, I was shocked. I was confused. I was put off. Because it was so different from what I'd grown up with, and I felt pretty much left out. Well, that's the fruit of years of Novus Ordo catechesis. Thank you very much. In any case, I am glad now that I didn't have a positive experience, because you don't want to make religious decisions based on subjective experience. You want to make them based on reason and faith. And nevertheless, I kept returning to the traditional Mass, or what I thought was the traditional Mass, because I'd been reading about it and I understood I didn't feel, but I understood that it was right and that the Novus Ordo Mass was at least compromised and inferior. But 
Let's go back for a moment now and look at what Pedro Gabriel missed in his critique of this religious sentimentalism, this immanentism that he rightly criticizes. Let's see. How about Paul VI, anti-pope Giovanni Battista Montini? 1976 was the year when things got really heated between the Vatican and Archbishop Lefebvre because Lefebvre was ordaining priests without the necessary permission of the local bishop and uh, even against the express prohibition of Paul VI. And so he was placed under suspension that year. Now, about a month before the forbidden ordinations, in his allocution to cardinals of May 24th, 1976, Paul VI addressed the controversy with Archbishop Lefebvre and his followers and said this, quote, It is with profound sadness, but with paternal hope, that we once more turn to this confrere of ours, to his collaborators, and to those who have let themselves be carried away by them. Oh, certainly we believe that many of these faithful, at least in the beginning, were in good faith. We also understand their sentimental attachment to habitual forms of worship or of discipline, that for a long time had been for them a spiritual support and in which they had found spiritual sustenance, unquote. So, there is one reference to religious sentiment. Then, right after the forbidden Episcopal consecrations of Archbishop Lefebvre in 1988, it was John Paul II who wrote in his so-called apostolic letter, Ecclesia Dei, of July 2nd, the following, quote, to all those Catholic faithful who feel attached to some previous liturgical and disciplinary forms of the Latin tradition, I wish to manifest my will to facilitate their ecclesial communion by means of the necessary measures to guarantee respect for their rightful aspirations. Unquote. And further, in the same document, quote, Respect must everywhere be shown for the feelings of all those who are attached to the Latin liturgical tradition. Unquote. In 2007, the late Father Anthony Ciccata, God rest his soul, pointed out that the Vatican's concessions regarding the traditional Mass were always based on some kind of religious sentiment. The only kind of desire for the traditional Mass you were allowed to have, according to the Vatican, was precisely the subjective preference based on feelings, needs, nostalgic attachments, yada yada, that Pedro Gabriel now scolds the traditionalists in his church for. Here is what Father Giacotta wrote in response to Benedict XVI's motu proprio Summorum Pontificum. Quote, with the motu mass, meaning the traditional mass liberated by the motu proprio, with the motu mass, the modernists will now co-opt unsuspecting trads into their own subjectivist program. Pope St. Pius X condemned modernism because, among other things, it spurned dogma and exalted the religious sense of the individual believer. 
and the Vatican pronouncements that authorize the use of the traditional Mass from the 1984 indult onwards all do so on the basis of slippery and subjective modernist categories like different sensibilities, feelings, legitimate diversity, enjoyment, various charismata, cultural expressions, attachment, etc. Ratzinger now repeatedly sounds this theme. Attachment, affection, culture, personal familiarity, mark of identity, dear to them, attraction, form of encounter, and sacrality, which attracts. Everything is reduced to the subjective. Unquote. Bam! That is exactly what happened. And it is the Vatican's doing. Are you listening, Pedro Gabriel? The very religious subjectivism you are rightly criticizing in certain traditionalists is the result of the program kicked into gear by the modernist Vatican. Oh, and by the way, who's always talking about encounter, clearly a religious experience, as the origin of faith? That's right. The Frankster, his phoniness, Pope Francis. For example, on June 25th, 2016, when he was visiting Armenia, Francis said during a sermon, quote, Faith is born and reborn from a life-giving encounter with Jesus, from experiencing how his mercy illumines every situation in our lives. Unquote. There you go. Encounter and experience. Another example. On April 24, 2015, Francis said during his daily homily at the Vatican Guest House, the Casa Santa Marta, quote, Our faith is an encounter with Jesus. This is the foundation of our faith. Unquote. Once again, a subjective experience. Then, just the other day, October 10th, 2021, Francis said during the Angelus, quote, This is the starting point of faith, letting oneself be loved by him, by he who is Father, unquote. So, here too, we're talking about a personal experience. Oh, and in case you're worried about indifferentism, well, Francis sure isn't. During his general audience of January 22, 2020, the false pope said, quote, Ecumenical hospitality implies the desire to know the experience that other Christians have of God and the expectation to receive the spiritual gifts that stem from it, unquote. Sounds a bit subjective to me there. What do you think? Look, I could go on and on with more examples because the guy just never shuts up. But I think you get the point. It is the Vatican modernists who've been preaching a subjective internal religious experience as the foundation for faith and religion. That is common Novus Ordo theology in our day. Listen to this brief clip of Bishop Michael Olson of Fort Worth, Texas, who gives a definition of faith in a televised program around 2013 that 
will really freak you out. This is what he says. Faith begins by a lived experience of God. We articulate that experience as best we can and share it with others who've had like experiences, which we form doctrine. We return to living that faith and then reflect further on it as it grows among people. Now that is pure modernism. No wonder Francis made this guy a bishop. He fits right in. So my piece of advice for Dr. Pedro Gabriel would be, if you're concerned about modernism, you may want to turn your attention to the Casa Santa Marta and the modernist-in-chief who resides there, who happens to be the head of your religion and all of his lackeys, because your church, sir, is infested with modernism. To put it differently, if you're on a crusade against carnivores, don't be looking for who's got a few pieces of bacon hidden inside a garden salad at the local vegetarians club, while at the same time you're cheering the crowd pigging out at the 99 cents burger fest at the Texas Roadhouse. All right, it's time to take a look at the clock here. Well, time flies when you're having fun. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope this podcast was enjoyable and informative for you. And although it took you only, what, an hour and 15 minutes or so to listen, it took countless hours to prepare and produce. Researching, writing, editing, and so on. It's a lot of work, and uh, if you'd like to support this effort financially, you may do so at novosordowatch.org slash donate. And of course, you can also find this link in the show notes. Novos Ordo Watch, which produces this podcast, operates almost entirely on the kind and generous donations of individuals like you. And a big thank you to all who are already making this work possible or have done so in the past. And I know there are also many who would like to, but are not able to, and you are appreciated as well. Well, folks, hopefully there will be another full-length Tratcast by the end of December. No guarantees, because you never know what happens, but it is a possibility. In the meantime, if you like this podcast, please tell others about it. If you didn't like it, please keep it to yourselves. Either way, until next time, God bless. Редактор